ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, thank you for sticking with us. I uh, hope uh, everyone's enjoying lunch uh, and uh, uh, ready uh, for our uh, lunch and speaker. Uh, equality under the law is, of course, a, a, a fundamental uh, bedrock American principle and American ideal. Uh, but of course, anyone who's paid any kind of attention to American history understands how often uh, the reality has fallen short of that ideal. And that is certainly uh, no less true when it comes to government surveillance than to the rest of American life, from uh, the targeting of Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in uh, the 1960s through uh, the uh, targeting of uh, American Muslim groups and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement today, uh, surveillance in America has never been colorblind. It has always been uh, uh, minority populations that have borne the brunt of government suspicion and government scrutiny um, and abuses of intelligence power. And so uh, to keep our eyes trained on that fact, uh, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Cato Institute a uh, sort of a legend of, uh, of civil rights, Wade Henderson, who for two decades has helmed the Leadership Conference, a, uh, a, uh, a coalition of more than 200 national uh, groups fighting for uh, civic equality and civil rights. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to welcome to the stage uh, Mr. Wade Henderson. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, guys. Wake up. Good, after <laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, as Julian said, I'm Wade Henderson. I have the great honor of being the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. The Leadership Conference is a coalition of more than 200 national organizations working to build an America as good as its ideals. I actually haven't been uh, in the Cato Institute building in many years. Uh, in the 1980s, I was a lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union, and I frequently found myself aligned with the Cato Institute on issues of immigration reform, which is the subject I handled for the ACLU, and uh, occasionally would meet at your old Capitol Hill office. But it's good to, to be here this afternoon. I want to thank Julian Sanchez and the Cato Institute for inviting me here to discuss the implication that our nation's increasing use of surveillance has for communities of color who historically have had a very different relationship to state power. Now, this is not a topic that I'm asked to discuss very often. So I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to talk about why this issue has become an increasingly important aspect of the work of the Civil and Human Rights Coalition that I lead. Uh, and to do so in a room of people who have made the growth and abuses of our surveillance state central to their work is a real treat. Now, in the simplest terms, the concerns that we raise about the surveillance state are concerns that we in the civil and human rights community raise all the time, and that all Americans are entitled to equal treatment under the law, and that frequently America fails to live up to that ideal. 
Now, because in a nation that has yet to seriously reckon with its racial history, the color of surveillance ends up often looking black and brown. Racism in America has always been about controlling the freedom and liberties of people of color. A primary way of enforcing this control was to create mechanisms for keeping tabs on them. Slaves were watched in the fields by overseers. Prominent leaders of the social movements for civil rights, including W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Fannie Lou Hamer, Whitney Young, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and perhaps most notoriously, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., were tracked and wiretapped. Surveillance and infiltration uh, from within <coughs> programs like COINTELPRO uh, helped to undermine entire movements like the Black Power Movement and the Vietnam Anti-War Movement. But our contemporary discourse around surveillance often obscures that history and suggests that these racial, ethnic, and religious patterns don't exist today. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. Many people know that the FBI wiretapped Dr. King and placed him on a watch list. Few know that this was done in the name of national security. And hardly anyone knows that the NSA also wiretapped Dr. King in the late 1960s, something that the agency disclosed just three months after the first revelation about Edward Snowden. The recent debates over NSA reform presented an important opportunity to discuss the disproportionate surveillance of people of color. Yet the available Senate records show that Dr. King's name was never even spoken once during those debates. This failure to acknowledge the historical precedence of our current surveillance state and the racial and ethnic dimensions of these practices has helped to create a conversation that obscures the particularities of how our current surveillance state actually works. Now take, for example, the NSA phone call tracking program that has been at the center of our current debate about government surveillance. Most Americans think the program is bad because the NSA was logging everyone's calls. But what wasn't well known was that the blueprint for the NSA's call tracking program was a drug enforcement administration program that monitored the international calls between the U.S. and select countries, including Mexico and most of Central and South America, for nearly a decade in the 1990s. Now think about it. The most notorious surveillance program in our nation's history was effectively beta tested on immigrants. Now we are really just playing catch up yet again to the extent to which the government violates Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. In the 21st century, people assume everyone is watched, but not everyone is watched equally. Now why isn't there more of an outcry about this? Well, I believe in part it's because we are failing to take seriously the way our biases around race, religion, and immigration status inform the choices we make with respect to surveillance. So what does this mean for our work going forward? Well, I think first and foremost, this means that we should put civil rights concerns more squarely 
in the center of these surveillance debates and make clear that they are inextricably linked with civil liberties. We cannot have a conversation about ending mass surveillance in America without a recognition of the racial and religious dimensions of the phenomenon. Now, this is work that we at the Leadership Conference have begun to do with a broad coalition of civil rights and media reform organizations. In February of 2014, we joined with these groups in endorsing the civil rights principles for the era of big data. These principles represented the first time that national civil and human rights organizations have spoken publicly about the importance of privacy and big data for communities of color, women, and other historically disadvantaged groups. Through these principles, we and the other signatory organizations highlighted the growing need to protect and strengthen key civil rights protections in the face of technological change, including calling for an end to high-tech profiling, urging greater scrutiny of the computerized decision-making that shapes opportunities for employment, health, education, and credit, underlining the continued importance of constitutional principles of privacy and free association, especially for communities of color, calling for greater individual control over personal information, and emphasizing the need to protect people, especially disadvantaged groups, from the documented real-world harms that follow from inaccurate data. Now, this is critically important as we grapple with how to deploy new technologies. Right now, police departments across the country are adopting new surveillance technologies, including cameras that scan license plates at mosques, smartphone apps that recognize faces, and devices that intercept signals from mobile phones. These and other secret tools first justified on national security grounds are being applied for domestic law enforcement purposes. The sales pitch for these new technologies is that they will automatically increase public safety and that by replacing human beings, we would also be eliminating bias. Now, in some cases, these technologies will catch people who have committed crimes, some of them quite serious. But mark my words, these safety gains come with safety risks. And while these technologies may be powerful, they are not neutral. Take facial recognition, for example, just as one. The little research that has been done in the area suggests that face recognition is 5 to 10% less accurate when seeking to identify an African-American, a female, or a young face as opposed to a white, male, or older face. At the same time, racial disparities in arrests mean that this technology may be less accurate for the demographic it is most likely to be used on, African-Americans. These kinds of errors could easily result in wrongful investigations, arrests, and convictions. Now, a recent article noted the use of unreliable, locally collected gang database uh, to prioritize uh, the immigration and customs enforcement deportation actions. Now, some of these local gang databases include information collected through social media surveillance. The, database, uh, are full, the databases are full of unreliable information 
and ISIS system has access to all of them. <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. Now, some of you have seen Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Do you remember that film of a few years ago? Uh, you're familiar with the concept of predictive policing. Uh, today, police nationwide have begun using tools with names like Beware, Hunch Lab, and PredPal to predict who might commit crimes or where crimes might be committed and to target policing to those people and places. We think this is fortune teller policing that uses deeply flawed and biased data and relies on vendors that shroud their products in secrecy. Instead of using predictive technology to address police misconduct, departments are using these tools in a manner that supercharges discrimination and exacerbates the worst problems of our justice system. Now, re recently, uh, the Leadership Conference uh, released civil rights principles for body-worn cameras, signed by 34 civil rights, privacy, and media rights groups. Our principles noted that without proper safeguards, these cameras could become tools for surveillance of the same communities they are intended to protect. And because cameras are worn on officers' bodies, the surveillance system is concentrated in the communities where officers are physically present disproportionately in communities of color. Now, as a lifelong civil rights advocate, I'm outraged by the surveillance of the Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities. I'm offended by the profiling of people of color and immigrants, and I am infuriated by the monitoring of protesters and the tracking of the Black Lives Matter movement. As a lawyer who sees the U.S. Constitution as his North Star, I'm appalled at the way we've whittled away at the Fourth Amendment and further codified in law the state's ability to infringe on Americans' right to privacy and other liberties. Now, I believe our charge today is to build an inclusive movement that recognizes that people of color are often the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to the growth of the surveillance state. It may start with people who look like me, but it eventually grows to ensnare all of us. More importantly, when any one of us loses his or her liberty, we all lose. So the time to act is now. Americans are large, largely stood by and watched during the rapid growth of our nation's surveillance state in the wake of terrorist attacks of September 11th. We watched the nation state that targeted Muslims and Arabs and those perceived to be Muslim and Arab. We stood by because we were frightened and because we had some faith and trust in our elected officials. Our faith and trust in our leaders will soon be put to the test. President-elect Trump has called for a national registry of Muslims, Americans, mass deportations, and a national stop-and-frisk policy that has already been deemed unconstitutional. He is putting a cabinet in place uh, that is poised to implement these activities. Now, three million people will not show up on day one of the Trump administration and volunteer themselves for deportation. Okay, the Trump administration will have to find them, and the administration will have at their disposal 
the greatest surveillance apparatus that our nation and arguably the world has ever known. Soon, very soon, we will commemorate the anniversary of the first modern Civil Rights Act, which was the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which was initiated by President Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was one of my personal heroes because when you think about the Civil Rights Act of 1957, some activists at the time referred to it as weak tea. But the truth is, that Civil Rights Act was the act that gave us the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, the nation's leading governmental civil rights law firm. It also gave us the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, which is the conscience of the nation and has reported on racial divisions since its inception in 1957. I celebrate President Eisenhower's contribution to civil rights, but I also recognize it was President Eisenhower who presided over a mass deportation program known as Operation Wetback that saw over a million individuals, including American citizens, deported, quote unquote, back to Mexico because they were the surplus labor of the Bracero program that had come to an end. Even the most enlightened political official can stumble into the darkness of a violation of civil rights and civil liberties without adequate safeguards and protections. And that's why a conference like this is so important. Now, as a civil rights advocate, and more importantly, as an American citizen, this really terrifies me. It should terrify you too. So we may not agree on everything, but when it comes to surveillance, we are allies as civil rights advocates and as libertarians. We value the First Amendment. We value the Fourth Amendment. There could be no civil rights movement had there not been a First Amendment to the Constitution. There could be no civil rights movement had there been no protections afforded under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Civil rights and libertarian ideals both call for sharp limits on government spying. Civil rights leaders and the most vulnerable communities we represent have paid the price when those limits are absent. And civil liberties activists have often led the charge in calling for them to be put in place. Now, we are at a critical juncture in this work where I think our work together must intensify. And that must happen right now. We've already lost so much over the years by our failure to speak. And that is why I break out of my shell this afternoon, guys, and come to speak to a conference of libertarians who purport to lift up the value of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. And I'm so honored that you've given me the opportunity to address you this afternoon. So thank you so much, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, Julian tells me there's a custom at these uh, luncheons to take a couple of questions. And unfortunately, I have another engagement this afternoon. But if there are a couple of questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. Yes, ma'am. I think there's a microphone floating around here. And please identify yourself if you would. Thank you. Uh, I think we have lost your microphone. So if you could speak loudly, I think we can hear you. And introduce yourself, please. Ah, okay. 
All right, thank you. Well, it's a great question. It's a great question. And let me congratulate you for your work at the local level in a grassroots effort to address these issues. That's very positive. You know, national security was used as a broad rubric in which to encompass not just legitimate threats to the security of our nation, but more broadly to encompass those who engaged in dissent or challenging the powers that be. And so often individuals who were outspoken found themselves under surveillance because they were considered national security threats by our Federal Bureau of Investigation or some powerful lawmaker might dub them uh, so accordingly. And that obviously had implications for much of the work, whether it's the Black Panther Party or Dr. King and others. It was a distortion of the meaning of national security. National security, as a general matter, should have a narrow definition that should not encompass allowing the government to engage in surveillance involving legitimate dissent. The same conceivably is happening today with the movement for black lives. You know, often I hear criticism uh, among uh, communities of individuals of varying ages, but often individuals who are older, individuals both in the majority community and in the minority community are sometimes critical of the behavior of activists of the Black Lives Matter movement. I remind them, however, that that movement resulted in the removal of three police chiefs in cities that had, those police chiefs had engaged in a failure to supervise their police departments in ways that brought risk to individual communities they were monitoring. So whether it's Ferguson, Missouri, or Chicago, or Baltimore, that movement did a good thing. It helped to remove two prosecuting attorneys who had failed to use their positions to seek justice as they were required. That's a good thing. So any effort to uh, sweep and review the movement for black lives under the rubric that they represent a threat to national security, I think is a distortion. So we haven't sought to redefine national security. I think the definition was distorted by those who would seek to use it to justify efforts that clearly are violative of the Fourth Amendment if they were known, and who often use pretextual bases for securing the kind of government warrants that would be necessary to justify the action. Uh, it's gonna require people like you who are engaged at the local level with communities all across the country to try to push back 
on that distorted definition of the term? It's a good question. I hope that helps. Couple more? Yes, ma'am. Please, again, speak up. And give me the example that you're referring to specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I don't dispute that. Okay. All right. What I would say is that you are correct in identifying women and other groups, often who spoke out um, in ways that challenged the status quo. I mean, obviously, you know, women have struggled long and hard for recognition in the American polity. The fact that women didn't get the vote until 1920 is an indication just how precarious uh, those rights are. And, you know, I think if nothing else, what um, the use of national security definitions have done is to suggest that, look, you know, these liberties obviously are ephemeral, they have to be protected and reinforced regularly. Your point is well taken, and I'll include that in the future. Women have to uh, be recognized for their vulnerability and the way the surveillance state has been used. Excellent point. Last question, guys. Yes, sir. Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting observation. I, I guess I would, look, I would say that the United States continues to be a work in progress. As a nation, we were founded with flawed concepts inherent in the American definition of citizenship and where we were as a society. We have evolved in a way that you know, I'm not satisfied with by any means. But I certainly recognize the progress that has been made. Just, just one slight digression, and then I'll come back to your question. You know, I talked with a number of young progressives who reacted to the election of our, you know, new administration, and they were quite upset. And they argued that, oh my God, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And I reminded them that, guys, uh, some of us are a little older, Okay, uh, I remember 1968. I remember when two iconic leaders were assassinated within a few months of each other. I remember when there was a tumultuous Democratic National uh, uh, Convention in Chicago that was one of the most violent we had ever seen. I remember the election of an administration that had no respect for whatsoever toward protecting against the expansion of the surveillance state. And I felt the country was coming apart at the seams. I then reminded them that you could go back a few years prior to that 
And we couldn't even be in a place like this with an integrated audience. I grew up in the nation's capital. I grew up with a form of apartheid that was as dehumanizing as anything in South Africa. And as you might imagine, I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. And I was committed to living a life to make change. I'm delighted that having grown up to be a lawyer, I have helped to bring about the change that I hope to see come. And I reminded them, I spoke to a group last week on the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And I reminded them that our country thought not only was it entering the war, but at a huge disadvantage. And I know that the hysteria that occurred at that time led to the internment of Japanese American citizens. I am aware that civil liberties are at risk at times of crisis. So, you know, I recognize this isn't necessarily the best of times for some, but it's certainly not the worst of times for the nation. And I am confident, I'm confident, that when American values are framed in a stark way that suggests those values are being compromised by government policies, Americans respond to that. Now, Americans respond to that. Our national character as a people has helped us use the elasticity of our Constitution in ways that have helped expand the concept of equality in, in ways that the founders never envisioned. No, I'm not an originalist. I'm not a Clarence Thomas. I don't take that view, okay? But I do recognize that the Constitution has great value and that when lifted up and applied to individual circumstances, people respond. That, for me, is the important lesson. And uh, so, yes, I think these challenges are very real. And guys, I'm freaked about the prospect that a foreign government hacked our election. I really am. I think it bodes, doesn't bode well for the future. But I also hope that the kind of investigation that is being generated with bipartisan support, and I hope the kind of reaction that this conference and other debates get around issues of surveillance will help to push back against a, uh, a mindless expansion of government authority in this area. That's the only thing we can hope for at the end of the day.